Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Electricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. You're very welcome to this segment of Yates on Sunday, which is where we have our big profile interview, where we talk to someone of interest about their lives, the political, social issues of Ireland today, and catch up with them and, and, and their backstory as well. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the programme Lucinda Creighton. She, of course, former uh, Fine Gael TD, former Minister for European Affairs, uh, then, of course, set up, was a founder of Renua a leader and that now uh, having lost her seat in Dublin Bay South has reinvented herself. Lucinda you're most welcome. Uh, Thank you. So life after politics first of all you're expecting a baby <laughs> Gwendolyn's going to have a brother or sister in two and a half weeks. Indeed yeah. You're yeah. catching up for lost time here. Well I don't know about that but anyway yeah we're in for a penny and for a pound so. So being self-employed now I suppose you have to work right up to the birthday. Yeah, yeah I do. Um it's it's really busy. Um and uh, well you know yourself when you're when you're sort of running your day-to-day business there's not really much opportunity for downtime. But it's much the same as when I was a politician. I mean, when I uh, when I had my daughter three years ago, I was a pretty busy TD, and uh, it was it was much the same, to be honest. So, so uh, uh, what what is your day job now? I'm reading about Vulcan Consulting and this role with uh, an organisation which I'm unfamiliar with called FIPRA. F I P R A. Just tell me, what are you doing with yourself? Um, so I set up my own business last year um, and it's essentially a consulting business advising um, clients, mainly multinational, on EU regulation, uh, EU policy and the political process. So government relations. Um, that kind of has changed a little bit. I mean, uh, in that since uh, very shortly after I established the company, um, the UK voted to leave the European Union. So while my focus was originally very much on sort of Brussels and um, the broader EU picture, it has actually become more domestically focused in the last, um, particularly in the last number of months. So doing more work in Ireland, actually, because there's a huge amount of interest in Ireland now. Um, opportunities from US companies and others um, who are looking at Ireland, looking at expanding operations, establishing so, so new operations. So. Are you running a, a Brussels office of FIPRA? You, oh, explain that. Sorry. So, so I work with FIPRA, which is, um, FIPRA is a global public affairs company government relations company. Um, they have a big office in Brussels. I work with their Brexit team um, and my 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 own company is actually b- becoming a, a member of the FIPRA network. So we will join with companies from Canada, from South Africa, from all over the European Union, from China as one of the, the member units of the of the, the FIPRA brand, if you like. Um, so it just helps to develop contacts all over the world and mean that we can we can actually provide a more global service to to clients. So it's pretty exciting. So if you're at the interface of politics, bureaucrats, technocrats, the world of regulation and business, which it seems to be, as you've outlined, I'm taking it that you're pretty up to speed with the different perspectives of the way Brexit may emerge. And my my question to you really is to to drill down into Brexit a Mm -hmm. little bit from a trade perspective. 
What's your best sense of the timetable involved? In other words, we've been told repeatedly that the divorce deal about money and and citizens' rights and all that will be concluded within the two-year process after Article 50 was triggered. That we then will have some transitional arrangement and then we have the question of a, a trade deal, whether it's the Norwegian model or whatever it might be. What's your sense of the timetable? Um, well, obviously, the kind of the parameters and well, the parameters of a trade deal um, uh, ideally would be would be uh, agreed and resolved before the end of the two year negotiating period. Um, I think that's probably unlikely um, because it's so big and so deeply political. Um, I think the most important aspect from our point of view will be the transition deal. Um, and I would say that it's probably 50-50 as to whether there will be a transition deal agreed. So, you know, when you listen to a lot of the commentary, particularly from the UK, when you, I mean, we read a lot of British newspapers in this country, so we, we get a very heavily kind of biased perspective. It's almost as if it's a done deal. I don't believe it is. Um, I think there's an awful long way to go in this. Um, so you're saying there'd be a cliff edge after the I two think years? There's a, there's a very real prospect of a cliff edge. Um, and, uh, and that means going into the WTO trading system and all that that entails. Um, so, you know, there's nothing straightforward. The UK election, the recent UK election has complicated mat- matters, both from the point of view of the bilateral negotiations between the UK and the EU, but also in the context of the North um, and the issues that have been, you know, very much the focus of the Irish government over the last 12 months. Um, we don't know how it's going to go. Will Theresa May even be Prime Minister by the end of the year? Probably not. Um, who replaces her? Is it is it a more moderate Philip Hammond? Um, or is it, um, you know, uh, a potentially more um, divisive and more hardline Brexit here along the lines of Michael Gove or Boris Johnson um, or, or David Davis or whoever. These are questions that I don't think anybody uh, can answer yet. OK, so if the, if the British side is completely unpredictable, the EU side, I mean, like, I, <clears throat> you sort of get the, the impression uh, after the sort of platitudes are done, it's sort of good riddance uh, by some federalists. And you know what? If we can give these people a punishment beating, it'll deter anyone else having sort of a bout as Euroscepticism. Yeah. How fearful should we be of the EU side because we'll be the collateral damage? Yeah, I think that's nonsense, frankly. I, I don't buy it. I think that's that's the sort of spin that we, we've heard repeatedly for the last 20 years from Eurosceptics in the UK. Um, I'm in Brussels, you know, a few times a month. I'm pretty familiar with the perspectives of all of the EU governments. Um, there are there are some small exceptions, but the vast majority want to deal with the UK. The vast majority are disappointed, firstly, that the UK are leaving. They didn't want them to leave. Um, and uh, and there, is an, there is a real effort to be pragmatic. Um, Michel Barnier, who is the chief negotiator, um, despite the fact that he's he's French and there's always an assumption that French people, you know, have, have an axe to grind with the UK. He's very pragmatic. Um, I've worked with him closely over the years, both when he was commissioner and we were both vice presidents. Of but the only EPP. last week Barnier came out. Uh, Barnier came out, and he, as much as said, "Look, uh, this is going to be very stark here, lads." Mm-hmm. And I don't know what. He, he, and he kept repeating the above, which is WTO rules and so on. But now, I think he had to. I mean, in fairness, you well, know, sorry, I, that, I, I'm over and back to London a lot as well. And it that was, is a huge deterrent to is. someone in Italy who's considering, uh, uh, you know, looking at their future. Because the argument is, if Britain gets a favourable deal, that's quite open access. Sure, everyone will go for that. But, but 
But it's not a question. Of, I mean, you know, there there is a system in place called the single market. There's a system in place called the customs union. They come with huge obligations, as we know. And we hear from business all the time about the red tape and the challenges to meet all of the regulatory obligations um, to be part of that system. So there's a big price that you pay, including Irish companies, let's be clear, to be part of that. So the idea for any of us, whether it's, you know, whether I mean, Michelle Barnier, I think, is trying to spell out the, the, the glaringly obvious from, from from, from my point of view, um, that if you choose to leave the single market, if you choose to leave the, the customs union, if you don't want the obligations of membership, you cannot expect to continue with all of the benefits. How would Irish companies feel, for example, small businesses that are you know working to very tight margins, or indeed you know larger Irish companies um, who are trying to operate within the parameters and the rules and the regulations under the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice? Um, if the UK, if their competitors in the UK could uh, enter at a you know a different standard, lower standards, without any of the the cost implications of the of compliance with all of these regulations, they would be at a huge unfair advantage versus Irish companies or French companies or Polish companies. Um, that's just not realistic, and it's not going to happen. And the UK, you know, I think we have to you have to go back to the very starting starting point, which is that the UK. Has has taken the decision firstly to leave the European Union. Um, now that has been interpreted by the Conservative government um, as a decision to leave the single market and the customs union. There are plenty of people who campaigned for Brexit last year who claimed that they would stay in the single market and stay in the customs union. So there's an argument to say that actually people were profoundly misled in the referendum campaign last year. But it has been interpreted. Okay, well, we as don't leaving. rerun that campaign. No, no. Okay, but, well let's look at Europe post Brexit. Yeah. There's a 10 billion plus hole in the budget. Uh, and that, you know, pro rata, 37 cent in the euro is in agriculture. It's a 3 billion uh, hole in the CAP. Now, let's say they pay all their money in the seven year tranche up to 2020. Mm. How do you see Europe resolving that? Because the Germans and the French and the Dutch are saying, sorry, we're not getting more. Uh, do you see there being cuts in expenditure or do you see that everyone will have to pay more? I, th- I think it's likely there'll be a bit of both. So I was I was part of the negotiating team for the last multi-annual financial framework, the seven-year budget, which was nine hundred and eighty billion um, for for the the current Over the period, seven the current years, period, yeah. yeah. Um, and that that budget was um, it was very difficult to negotiate because the UK wanted to cut the budget. Actually, they were the most difficult um, partners to negotiate with at the time, um, for 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 obvious reasons. Um, I think that the likelihood is that there will be some some additional contribution. Um, and there will be some budget cuts. Um, so I don't think that the full the full whole will be made up. Um, the likelihood is that there will be some sort of, which is the the, the, the norm at European level. The usual level. fudge. There will be some sort of a, well it's a compromise or a fudge, whatever way you want to look at it. Um, but, but we still have a lot of outstanding issues. So we don't know if there's a transition deal likelihood is the UK will have to continue paying into the budget. If the UK wants access to the single market, they may well have to continue paying into into the budget as Norway does, for example. So, there, you know, we don't know until the end of the negotiating period. But would you, period. from an Irish perspective, would you be concerned that the CAP could be ripped up? Well, the CAP has declined um, as a proportion of the EU budget for the last, you know, several years. And um, I think it's inevitable that the CAP, the Common Agricultural Policy, will continue to decline as a proportion of the budget. Um, I think that's just an inevitability. Um, So the likelihood is that it will decline. um, But I think the overall budget will also probably decline. Okay, I I would perceive you as a Europhile, as being very pro-Europe, 
in, in, in all circumstances. Could I put it to you that post-Britain going, and, and Britain being very Eurosceptic, that we are facing the prospect of Macron and Merkel almost having a hegemony over the way things evolve. Uh, and like we see, oh, they have a summit in Berlin or there's a summit in Paris and they've decided to take such and such a stance. Now, I take the view that tax harmonisation is a disaster for us because we need the few little incentives to get people to come to the peripheral regions. I mean, surely the big disaster for Europhiles is that Brexit has not been used as an opportunity to say, hold on a second, why is there such Euroscepticism, not only in Britain, yeah. but across, you know, 40% of the electorate in some countries are saying, we're sick of being ruled by Brussels centrally and all this kind of thing. Surely Europe has done nothing to look at itself and reform. Um, okay. And it's not accountable. You've, you've made an awful lot of points. No, but sorry, in to that. get my gist, that um, like, they have not used yeah. this to reform. I see, I, well, I, let me tell you how I see myself. I see myself as somebody who was absolutely, I think the, the European project has been massively successful from an Irish point of view and for peace and prosperity on the continent, full stop. Um, that's not to say I'm not realistic about the challenges and about the differences and the disputes that exist within the European project and the failures. And there are some, of course, um, like any political system, like any system of governance, if you look domestically at how we run our doll and our government, you know, you can equally make criticisms about lack of accountability and so on. Um, so it's not perfect. And I'm, I'm not, I don't look at it in ro- rose tinted terms. Um, but what I do think is it's worth fighting for. I think it's worth preserving. And I think it's worth Ireland taking a much more proactive role in trying to influence its outcomes. Now, we're a small country and we have to be aware of that. But we can also be very smart. When we were joining the European um, community, as it was, um, in 73 and after we did join people like Garrett Fitzgerald you know developed a vision for Ireland's place in Europe it was easier to navigate then but we haven't actually adapted we haven't adapted to an EU of 28 member states maybe soon to be 27 um, and we have to change so we need to be looking at who do we develop strategic partnerships with you know most the vast majority of EU member states want to maintain tax competition you know I, I'm not aware of um, I could probably name list on one hand um, the number of countries that want to introduce um, CCCTB, for example, Common Consolidated Corporate Tax Base or Financial Transactions Tax. Do so you think we've allies on we this have issue? Hu- we have a huge number of allies, and yes, the UK was a was a was an easy one for us to rely on. We sat back. Um, you see it all the time in in Brussels. There's a huge amount of money uh, in, and resources invested by the UK Perm Rep, but also by you know, representative bodies, City UK, all of these entities who spend literally hundreds and hundreds of millions every year lobbying, engaging with the European Commission, trying to influence outcomes. And we have to now step up and we have to start spending more on it. We have to start putting more people on the ground in Brussels and engaging. And we also have to start um, making making, making an effort to uh, work with you know, Poland, Latvia, Estonia, Finland, Sweden, countries that have a lot in common with us, which we've been a bit lazy about, frankly, over over the years. OK, let's move from Vulcan Consulting to another venture that you started, uh, the political party, Ray Nua. One of your partners in that enterprise was Eddie Hobbs, and he was one of my guests sitting in the chair you are a few weeks ago. And he had this to say about the state of the party since you and him left. Now it has what I would now call a Stepford Wives uh, strategy. It's against tax individualisation. So it wants mummy back in the kitchen and pro the Eighth Amendment. 
So it's very much gone into deep conservative, social conservative territory. The God Squad, um, as you could say, have now taken over with what the, what remains of the of Renew, in my opinion. Now, I've been keeping those opinions to myself for a year because I felt it would be unfair uh, to, to make any comments or, or get involved in, you know, let's see how this goes. Let's talk about Renew, Eddie Hobbs there. Um, great excitement when the party was launched and, and, you know, because after the PDs and so on, there was an appetite for something other than civil war politics in the centre-right uh, 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 space. But, uh, as with all politics, you'll ultimately judge by elections. You stood 24 candidates, not one elected, uh, 2% of the vote. What went wrong with Renew? Um, well, is it for, firstly, there's nothing like Eddie to, to, to give a colourful, uh, account of, of, uh, of what's happening. Um, I, um, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there are so many factors. It was, it was a difficult period. I mean, we were a party established and I was listening to your panel earlier. I mean, established, um, very much focusing on, um, you know, fiscal rectitude and responsible economic governance. It was a huge mantra of everything that we said and did. Um, and maybe after 10 years of austerity, there was no appetite for that. Now that might change in a couple of years time. I think it probably will. You know, it's, it swings and roundabouts. I think our timing wasn't great. Um, the party was very much focused on me. I mean, Eddie, Eddie wasn't a candidate. He was a high-profile um, person involved in the party, but um, but ultimately it does come down to, to to names on ballot papers and who who's actually going forward. Um, you know, I ended up for the duration of the general election campaign basically doing press conferences almost every day on my own. Um, there was a very concerted campaign personally run against me, a completely spurious campaign um, by independent news and media, which I'm sure you're well well familiar with, um, which was subsequently proven to be completely. Um, you know, based on fantasy. Is this about Sippo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was it was front page of the paper multiple times during the the election campaign. It was very ta- targeted and very deliberate. And there were you know there were a whole range of other factors. So I, I don't think you can put I don't think you can put your okay. finger on one. Well, I think well, there are like, no, well, there's like this. Let me put my finger on yeah, one. Work away, okay, yeah. which is is that instead of it sort of being. PD Nua, which which you understand is tax cutting, sort of anti-public sector, so on and so forth. It was kind of like Spuck Nua, insofar as that you know it. it and this is what Eddie referred to in the well, God. I think squ- that's how, the God how squad. some people chose to interpret it. Well, sorry, I mean, do you didn't think that's fair because people said so, I read somewhere over the weekend that seventeen out of eighteen year canvassers in Dublin Basin were all had been activists in the pro-life campaign. D- sorry, a. Do you agree it was characterised that way? And B, was that accurate? I believe it was. I absolutely believe it was characterised that way. I think it was, I mean, I mean exactly that article. Okay. I don't know where that was came it, from. OK, was it's it absolute, accurate then? It's absolute what, nonsense, was it, was but it fair? there you go. Of course it wasn't fair, but that was, you know, that was, um, that's the way we were characterised and that's out of your hands. And when I look at, you know, I've, I've had two new ventures in the last two years. One of them was setting up a political party, which is based on voluntary time, you know, trying to mobilise people to, to, to give their time and trying to, to present and produce something coherent when people join for all sorts of reasons um, known only really to themselves um, as compared to setting up a business which I'm fully in control of and where I have a tight Mm. team of people and I work very closely with them and my my company has been profitable um, and expanding and growing since the day I established it. So, you know, I've put similar effort into both ventures but But, one unfortunately was out of my control. let's, Let's probe this a bit further. You were a young, bright, female 
a meteoric star in Fine Gael. You have got yourself elected and you reach this rock in the road whereby you not only lose your ministry, you lose your party membership all over the 2013 legislation in relation to abortion in the X case. I mean, that's not something that you do flippity jibber top of the head. That is a fundamental view. Is it not the case that that was the defining issue for you politically, abortion, and your career? Well, I mean, again, that's a matter for, for, I guess, for others to interpret. I mean, I see myself as having been, you know, actively involved in politics for, you know, 17 or 18 years. I worked at all levels of my former party. Um, you know, a lot of people came along when Fine Gael was going up in the polls. I was there in 2002 when the party lost 23 seats. I helped to rebuild the party along with, um, you know, colleagues from all over the country. Um, and I, I You're think, I, my, I, hang on. My I, question I, is, how important is abortion I to think, you? I think, I think, um, it's, it's very important, but it's very important to me along with a whole lot of other issues that I've worked on throughout my political career. It's not the defining like, issue? Like tax, like tax fairness, for example, like the EU agenda, which I'm passionate about and which I hope I did a good job on as minister. Um, some people choose to only define me by one issue, which is the right to life issue, which I think is a hugely important issue. I respect other people's positions on it and I would hope like, that they would respect you campaign mine. If there's going to be a referendum next year, would you campaign no, I've, I've, to, to I've not re- to vote re- no? I've completely retired from politics. I have no interest in campaigning on any issues at the moment. I am deeply involved in my business and I'm enjoying it. Um, I'm very interested in politics, but I take a much broader in- interest than just domestic politics. Um, I'm much more likely to be reading international media than I am domestic media, frankly. Um, so, no, I have no intention of getting involved in any campaigns um, in the near future. I'm, I'm very much focused on... Well, on I have to say I'm career. surprised because... Why? You know, because you sacrificed everything for this issue. Well, you know what? I think... I, I, I think you have to stand for something in politics and there are plenty of people who just see politics as a game and, you know, climbing your way up the greasy ladder and constantly sacrificing and compromising just to get ahead. And I'm proud of the fact that I put down a marker that I did, like, you know, the party had a position. It wasn't just my position. Um, The party chose to, you know, go into... Uh, a sort of a, a closed door um, backroom meeting uh, with the Labour Party to um, to to um, do this deal uh, to keep Eamon Gilmore in office, a, a person who I had a great working relationship with and I've great time for. Um, but that's what that's what happened. I thought it was grubby. And I didn't want to be part of it. And, you know, there are other issues that I would would also stand up for, because I think that if you stand for nothing in politics, which has become the norm, frankly, um, then what's the point in being there? And I'd rather not be there. And I'm quite happy with the decision I made. And and I'm quite happy with where I am now. From that perspective now, what do you think is the future of Reynua? I I really... And what do you think its core message is? Uh, to be to be honest, as I said, I'm much more likely to be to be focusing on international media. Um, no, I do care. I think I think Irish politics needs greater choice. Would you agree with his categorisation? Of them as the God Squad. I think that's unfair. I mean, I know John Lahey is the current leader of Renewa. Um, he's he's a person of great integrity, um, a great uh, councillor in his local area, and I hope will be a TD someday. And I and I wish him and I wish the party the very best. And is there any residual issue between Renew and Renew and you? Is there litigation over an electoral loan or anything like that? No, I'm not. I'm not. I mean, I'm not even barely. Uh, I'm not involved at all in the party. Um, They're not suing I'm, you. They're, no, they're not suing me, um, not to my knowledge, anyway. Right. Um, okay. Well, if you don't know about, it, I, don't, I don't know about. It. Okay. Um, I'm. I, I. But you know, I think that people who 
put their neck on the line to try and do something different and to offer people a choice deserve credit. I would give the same credit to the Social Democrats, for example. I don't agree with a lot of what they stand for. Um, but I think it's important that people have choice in, in Irish politics. And there's very little choice at the moment. There's very little happening in Irish politics, which I think is, is you know, a little bit disappointing. Um, but, you know, I, I certainly take my hat off to people who roll up their sleeves, get involved um, and do it mainly in a voluntary capacity. It's it's difficult, it's challenging and it's easy to sneer from, you know, from the sort of the, the, the hurler on the ditch position. Um, you know, it's easy for pundits to sneer at a new political venture. Um, they don't really And, and like the state disruption. funding and so on does screw new entrants. I mean, I've said that to you at the Absolutely. time. It, like, I, I, you know, I said it to Eddie Hobbs and others and you, are you mad to set up a new party because it's just an unclimbable Everest? I want to conclude uh, with a few minutes left people would want to know now that you're out of politics now that you can give your honest unabashed unfiltered opinion what do you make of Enda Kenny? Um, I mean I don't I don't have any strong views on Enda Kenny despite what, what people might well, believe Do you admire Enda Kenny? Um I wouldn't go that far. Um, you know I've worked I worked closely with Enda Kenny for many years as party leader Um I mean, I tend to... What would you rate him out of 10? I'm not going to put a number on it. As a statesman. Come on, you know I'm not going to put a number on it. Um, But you you have nothing to defend to you. You're not like going for election or anything. I'd give a rating, poor four and a half. I mean, like, (laughs) so give us your rating. (laughs) Well, maybe I'm not as simplistic as you. And I'm trending lower on that, (laughs) now that I think of it. No, look, I mean, I think think he was... Did you find he was disingenuous at any stage? I think... Like the, the sacking and, and the whole thing. Do you think, like, and like, it was pretty vicious with Kate O'Connell and what happened in the subsequent campaign. They really did go, like, you know, to get you out. Oh, in I know the last that. Look, I know that. And, you know, that's not my kind of politics. I leave that to other people. That's why I'm glad well, how not would to you be involved anymore. Their, his role. Do you think they were vindictive against of you? Of course. I mean, clearly. I mean, you know, a couple of months after I was thrown out of Fine Gael and sacked as a minister and, you know, I wouldn't care if I was sacked on the basis of my performance, but I don't think I was. I think I was a reason, I think I was a pretty good minister. Um, I was sacked um, for upholding a commitment which he and the party made um, um, repeatedly for many years before that. Um, and then a few months later, they changed their mind and said there should be freedom of conscience and free votes. Now, I think the government is going to have free votes on drink driving. I mean, come on, you know, so, um, you know. But why uh, do you think Ender was motivated so against you? I, so have, I, have, I really, I have no idea. I think, um, I think, I, I you know, it's not a secret that, you know, throughout my career as a, as a TD, um, I was always outspoken. Even before I was in the Dáil, I was a member of the National Executive of Fine Gael. I was always outspoken. I believe that politics is about debate. I believe that you have to be able to have a mature debate. And some people, um, including the very top leadership of the party for a long time, did not want any debate and did just wanted to shut it down and didn't like to to have, you know, everything was seen as a personal challenge. I I don't believe that if you have a difference of opinion on a policy matter, that that should always be taken personally. In fact, I think it should probably never be taken personally in politics, but it was always taken personally. Um, uh, There was a lot of, you know, personal sensitivity around. Um, But, you know, there are plenty of people that I admire um, in Fine Gael and indeed... Which brings me on to my final question, which is both at Trinity in the young Fine Gael days, elected to the council at the same time, elected to the Dáil at the same time and elected ministers around the same time. Give us an insight into Leo and how you think he will perform as Taoiseach. 
I mean, I have great hope for Leo as as Taoiseach. I I mean, he's a he's an exceptionally clever, uh, smart, bright person, and they're few and far between um, in our political system. Um, and I think I I certainly welcome the fact that we have a, a Taoiseach who is a thinker, um, who has views, and I suppose the the question and my hope for him is that he will he will act on those views and that he will be decisive and show, you know, courageous leadership, which is what the country needs. Um, and, uh, you know, he's he's got a probably a fairly limited period of time to do it. Um, he's had a challenging few weeks since he came into office. Um, you know, he do was, you think he has any flaws that might be exposed? Oh, he's, in, in he has loads. <laughs> of course he does. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> you know, I mean, of course he has flaws, but, um, but I think... Like um, what? I can't see any. Can you can't me. see no, any. No, no, That's unlike any. you, Ivan. <laughs> um, he's no. He of course he has flaws. Uh, um, you know, everybody I think in in politics has a tendency to question themselves, and um, I think it's important for him that he will be confident in what he does, um, and that he'll be decisive in what he does. And if he, you're if, sounding like you think he might be a bit insecure. No, if he if he follows his gut instinct um, and um, and acts on it, I think he'll be a great leader. He has the potential to be a really really excellent Taoiseach. And you know, I, 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 it, it's just gonna it's gonna be a, a test over the coming weeks and months to see how he gets on. But I, I think he's well up for it. Lucinda Creighton, we wish you well with your second baby and with Vulcan Consulting and all else. Thank you for being my special guest today. Yates on Sunday on News Talk, brought to you by SSE Electricity Business Energy, proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you.